I think there are two interesting paths not taken here. And the first is, you know, what if the United States had said, okay, we're simply going to stay in Afghanistan. And I think advocates of, of that decision have to be honest in saying that if we stayed, it was not going to be with 2,500 troops. The second road not taken, I think, would have been trying to do a slower, more deliberate withdrawal. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Ocilia. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. That seems to be the only thing in the news nowadays. And that's for good reason. Today we will explore the history of the US involvement in Afghanistan, what exactly went wrong, whether the withdrawal could have been handled better, and what this all means for America's foreign policy in the long term. To help answer these questions and more, we're delighted to have Professor Halbrands back on the podcast. Professor Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies U.S. foreign policy and defense strategy. Professor Brands has written extensively about Afghanistan and U.S. foreign policy in his regular Bloomberg column, so we hope that you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Brands. Thanks for having me. So the United States invaded Afghanistan almost two decades ago. Some of the members of the podcast were not even born when we first went into the country. What was the, what was the original mission of Operation Enduring Freedom and how did that mission evolve during the Bush administration? So the initial mission was really as much about disrupting potential future terrorist attacks on the United States as it was about gaining revenge for 9-11 or punishing the parties that had been uh, involved in it. And so obviously there was a sense after 9-11 that the United States could not uh, allow al-Qaeda and the Taliban to remain unmolested in their sanctuary in Afghanistan. But one of the main reasons for that was a fear that there might be additional plots in the offing. You have to remember that 9-11 was not a standalone event. It was the culmination of a series of escalating attacks from al-Qaeda dating back to the 1990s, including the uh, East Africa embassy bombings in 1998 and the attack on the USS Cole in uh, 2000. There were also, uh, and this is a point that is hardly remembered today, additional terrorist attacks in the fall of 2001, the anthrax attacks, for, for instance. And there was lots of intelligence reporting, we know from published accounts, about the prospect for uh, significant mass casualty attacks. And so if you look at some of the uh, memos from Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense that have since been released, there's a palpable fear that if the United States doesn't take military action to disrupt al-Qaeda's operations, it, it may face additional terrorist strikes. And so that was the initial purpose uh, of the invasion, to, to disrupt al-Qaeda's operations, to degrade it as an organization, and to remove the regime, the Taliban that had uh, sponsored and supported it in many ways. The way that the uh, operation evolved after that was, was interesting because once the United States had gotten rid of the Taliban government, the question was, well, what do you do next? You could simply retreat and say, we, we've made our point, right? We have wiped out the Taliban. We have severely punished al-Qaeda. Thus, we are going home. The problem was that if you did that, you would probably very quickly get a Taliban resurgence. Uh, you would be faced 
with an al-Qaeda that had sort of absorbed a blow from the United States and come back. And you might not necessarily be in a dramatically better place than you were at the end of September 2001. And so the decision was made that the United States had to create some form of political stability in a post-Taliban Afghanistan. Now, what that entailed varied dramatically over time. At the outset, it was something the United States thought it could accomplish by sort of plopping down a a democratic government in Afghanistan, uh, working with that government as well as some relatively nasty warlords out in the provinces to maintain a semblance of order and maintaining a pretty light American footprint. Over time, we shifted toward a heavier footprint approach premised on uh, building more of a functional uh, Afghan state and trying to pacify the country as the Taliban insurgency came back in the late 2000s and early 2010s. And then after that, we shifted back toward a strategy of basically trying to keep the Taliban at bay, preventing it from overthrowing the government and maintaining the ability to carry out counterterrorism strikes. But but all of this was related to the idea that if the United States simply picked up and went home, it risked seeing a return of the conditions that had brought about 9-11 in the first place. And so what made the Biden administration different was that Biden was the first president since 9-11 who was willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to take the risks of a Taliban return to power because I don't think that the, the war is worth it for the United States anymore. And we will touch on the Biden administration's unique approach to Afghanistan in a little bit. I want to continue uh, laying the groundwork for our listeners uh, pre-Biden administration. And one of the things that you started mentioning was that during the Obama administration, we saw a larger footprint in the country. This was the, the Obama surge that the policymakers often talk about. How successful was that surge and those moves? And what other policy decisions regarding Afghanistan were made during President Obama's second term after that surge? I would say that the Obama surge was moderately successful at best. Uh, There were a variety of challenges associated with it. While while it involved a significant number of troops, upward of 100,000 American troops, plus some uh, NATO and allied troops at the peak of the surge, it was never anything close to what you might want for sort of a comprehensive counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan. Nonetheless, there were some significant military gains in terms of beating back Taliban advances and extending government control into parts of the country where the Taliban had become quite strong. There were a couple of of problems, though. So one was that the the Taliban understood from the outset of the Obama surge that the surge would be time-limited. It would be limited to about 18 months, and so they could simply wait it out. Uh, The other problem was that other Afghan actors understood that as well. And so there was lots of hedging behavior by people who believed correctly that the United States would not indefinitely remain engaged in a significant enough capacity to bring about lasting stability in Afghanistan. And that had negative implications for things like uh, corruption and governance. It also had negative implications for the relationship with Pakistan. And all of this kind of fed into, I think, the broader problem with the Obama surge, which was that there was just never a lot of progress in addressing the underlying factors that were making the Taliban resurgence possible. And so there wasn't a lot of progress in terms of dealing with corruption. The United States ultimately decided that corruption was so entrenched uh, within Afghan governing structures 
that there was just no way of, of dealing with it while maintaining the cooperation of Afghan elites for the military campaign. And so after about 2011, 2012, corruption becomes, countering corruption becomes less of a priority for the United States. We never made a lot of progress in getting Pakistan to cease its support for the Taliban and associated actors and, and providing them with the sanctuary that they uh, enjoyed across the border. And so I think by 2011, Obama had, for a variety of reasons, become disillusioned with the Afghanistan war. And so you start to see a steady drawdown of American forces. And the initial plan was basically for combat operations to end in about 2014 and the United States to be out of Afghanistan altogether by the end of Obama's second term. What happens, though, is that Iraq falls apart after the United States withdrew entirely from that country in 2011, and you had the upsurge of ISIS in 2013 and 2014. And so Obama, even though I think he wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, worried what the consequences of that might be. And so when the Obama administration ended, the United States had gone back, basically, to the light footprint approach of the early George W. Bush years, where we had several thousand troops on the ground in Afghanistan, complemented by uh, a NATO mission there, that were mostly doing training, advisory assistance type activities, as well as direct counterterrorism strikes on uh, on Al-Qaeda and other groups. And this is what President Trump and the Trump administrations inherit when it comes into power in 2017. And in his campaign, he made it seem that his instinct was to pull out of the war. But once he became president, it seems that he was convinced by the by the same thinking that that the U.S. was worried about what leaving would do to Afghanistan and terrorism worldwide. That said, he did produce the U.S. Taliban peace deal and the Biden administration continues to cite this peace deal in the in, in, in the news and in the ongoing debate about the withdrawal. So could you please uh, briefly describe the stipulations of this deal that the Trump administration and the Taliban and to a lesser degree, the Afghan government put together um, in 2020, I believe? Yeah, so, so Trump was very transparent when he was campaigning for president and saying that he wanted to end endless wars in the greater Middle East and he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. The reason he ended up not doing that was because in consultations with his advisors uh, in 2017, he, he ultimately decided that he didn't want to own the consequences of a withdrawal from Afghanistan any more than Obama had at the end of his presidency. And so this, the situation was eroding. Uh, it was clear that uh, if the United States wanted to achieve some sort of positive outcome in Afghanistan, it would require uh, a surge of you know, several thousand more troops, essentially. And if the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, you would relatively quickly see the erosion of the Afghan government and a Taliban resurgence. And uh, for both, I think, political and geopolitical reasons, President Trump didn't want to see that happen. Uh, he didn't want to bear the political costs of being seen to lose a war. Uh, he also probably did not want to deal with the geopolitical fallout of doing that, whether that was the further destabilization of uh, South and Southwest Asia or resurgent terrorist threat or a variety of other things. Nonetheless, Trump like Obama, becomes increasingly disillusioned with the war. 
as his presidency goes on. And so he decides he would very much like to get out. And so the, the way to think about the deal that the United States uh, cut with the Taliban in 2020 is that it was essentially meant to uh, reduce the military costs of being in Afghanistan for the United States by carving out a ceasefire, more or less, between uh, the Taliban and U.S. troops. It was meant to achieve some degree of enemy of my enemy is my friend cooperation with uh, the Taliban in terms of going after uh, ISIS Khorasan, which was uh, a threat to the United States and also a threat to the Taliban. And it was meant to lay the groundwork for a full departure by the United States um, by essentially being a, a prologue or a prelude to what was hoped to be a peace deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban. So the, the Afghan government was not a party to the 2020 deal between the United States and the Taliban. Uh, in fact, that 2020 deal weakened the Afghan government in a variety of ways. For instance, it required uh, the United States to put pressure on the Afghan government to release about 5,000 Taliban prisoners, and including some pretty dangerous ones. And, and so the situation that, that Biden inherited was a situation in which there was an agreement that called on the United States to remove its troops from Afghanistan by May 1st. There was a residual contingent of about, oh, 3,000, 3,500 American personnel in Afghanistan, again, doing advisory missions, doing counterterrorism uh, stuff, which was probably not going to be enough to stabilize the situation if the fighting resumed. Uh, and so Biden had to decide whether to adhere to this agreement and get out in relatively short order or to say the Taliban is violating the agreement. They have not broken with al-Qaeda, for instance. Uh, they have not uh, limited their attacks on the Afghan government in the way uh, that the deal envisioned and so, so on and so forth. And say, thus, the agreement is null and void and we are going to stay in Afghanistan with the military capabilities necessary to preserve the government and our access there. That was basically the choice that Biden made. And now let us shift our attention to President Biden and his administration. Because coming into the presidency, it seemed that Biden's thoughts on Afghanistan were different from the rest of the foreign policy establishment. So what were his thoughts on the war and what had he advocated for as vice president and during the campaign? My view is that uh, Joe Biden made his decision on Afghanistan in about 2009. And so uh, in 2009, when he was vice president, he was a strong opponent of the Obama surge. He basically argued that the United States should start downsizing its presence in Afghanistan to focus on counterterrorism issues rather than counterinsurgency issues. And he, he thought that he had been right uh, in that debate. He thought that the subsequent course of the war had proven him right. Uh, and so in retrospect, if you look back at his campaign statements and, and things of that nature, it's fairly clear that he intended to end the war. He simply did not think it was paying dividends for the United States anymore. We, we can talk more about the cost-benefit calculus of leaving versus staying. But I think uh, Biden believed that the war was distracting the United States from other things that it would be able to focus on to a greater degree once it left Afghanistan. He was clearly very 
troubled by the human cost of the war uh, to American service members in particular. Uh, and I think he had simply become uh, disillusioned with the Pentagon to a certain extent. He, he had become skeptical of any claims that the United States was making progress in Afghanistan because he, he felt like he had seen that movie before. And as we know now, President Biden pressed on for a timely withdrawal setting the deadline August 31st, uh, last a couple of weeks ago. What exactly went wrong? Why did it go wrong? And was it destined to go wrong regardless of when it was that we pulled out? So it's interesting. I mean, some people would question the premise of what you just asked. And, and so President Biden, for instance, I think would question that premise. And so if you look at his statements since mid-August, the argument has basically been that, yeah, of course, this is what was likely to happen once the United States withdrew. And, and in fact, uh, the fact that the Afghan military folded under pressure from the Taliban simply shows that we were right to leave in the first place. You then have other people making what I would consider to be a somewhat more textured argument along a variety of, of lines. And I think the, that argument would go something like this, that you had already started to get a demoralization of the Afghan military from, from 2020 onward, once the U.S. Taliban peace deal was signed, because it made clear that the United States was leaving uh, at some point, probably relatively soon. And it deprived the Afghan military of, of some of the things that it had come to uh, rely on, the degree of close air support, uh, for instance. And so in retrospect, it's clear that this is when a lot of the deal cutting between the Afghan military and the Taliban started. It, it was powerfully accentuated by the U.S. withdrawal. And so the thing to understand is that the United States... Uh, basically announced and then executed its withdrawal from Afghanistan at the very beginning of what's considered the fighting season in Afghanistan, which basically begins in the spring and runs through the fall because during the winter, uh, people go hole up. They go to ground, essentially. And uh, so it was just as the Taliban was getting ready to launch its major spring offensive. The withdrawal also didn't simply mean that Afghan troops were without American air support, that they were without um, some of the intelligence support that, that came with the American presence. It also meant, for instance, that large portions of the Afghan Air Force couldn't fly because helicopters and planes were maintained by American contractors who withdrew rapidly uh, once the withdrawal was announced. And then furthermore, the, the withdrawal was uh, completed very quickly. It was largely completed within about um, eight weeks. Uh, by, the, by early July, there was only a skeletal U.S. presence left in Afghanistan because once Biden made the decision to end the war, the Department of Defense quite reasonably decided they wanted to get American troops out as quickly as possible to reduce the likelihood that they would be caught in the crossfire. And so when you put all these things together uh, and you add to it the fact that the Afghan military was always designed not to fight independently, but to fight with American support and to fight in kind of an American way of war type style, then the U.S. withdrawal basically pulls out a lot of the props underneath the Afghan military and the Afghan government. And so at that point, it becomes actually 
quite rational for Afghan military commanders, Afghan government officials to say, we're not going to be successful in holding out against the Taliban over the long run. Let's cut whatever deals we can in the near term. And that's what produces the cascade of provincial capitals uh, and then major cities falling in, uh, in early August and leads to the situation where the Taliban have actually occupied Kabul in mid-August before the United States is able to finish withdrawing its forces. And I want to expand on that because I want to explore whether there was a middle ground between a strategic and operational middle ground between what happened and between the withdrawal and staying in the country. For example, could the collapse of the Afghan government have been prevented if American air support and defense contractors had withdrawn in a more strategic fashion instead of also abiding by the August 31st um, deadline? Or is that would that not have worked without U.S. troops on the ground as well? I think there are two interesting paths not taken here. And the first is, you know, what if the United States had said, okay, we're simply going to stay in Afghanistan? And I think advocates of, of that decision have to be honest in saying that if we stayed, it was not going to be with 2,500 troops. It wasn't going to be with 25,000 troops either, but there probably would have been a modest plus up of the U.S. presence required to continue supporting the Afghan military once the ceasefire between the U.S. and the Taliban was over and as the Taliban mounted what everybody assumed would be a major offensive against the Afghan government. So say that it's 4,000 or 5,000 or 7,000 or whatever the number is. You can make that argument and you can say that those troops were basically an insurance policy against what actually happened, against the fall of the government uh, the, the return of Afghanistan to a country where we, we suspect that terrorist groups will be able to operate with a higher degree of impunity. And so if you think those are the outcomes, then maybe you believe that it was worth keeping a presence of, let's say, 6,000 troops accompanied by uh, perhaps an equivalent number of NATO forces in the country to, to hedge against that. I, I think that's kind of a 51-49 decision. I think reasonable people can argue that one uh, either way, I, I was personally a little bit more in favor of uh, staying if we could keep it to a relatively uh, modest footprint of American forces. But, you know, regardless of how you assess costs and benefits there, that was one road not taken. The second road not taken, I think, would have been trying to do a slower, more deliberate withdrawal. And so uh, Fred Kagan, one of my colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, has suggested that the administration could have said, yes, we're leaving, but we're leaving in December 2021. So we're basically going to stay. We're going to get the Afghan military through the fighting season. Uh, and then we are going to work like hell to try to get them to come up with a more sustainable defense concept. One that says, we're not going to try to hold the entire country. We're going to try to hold kind of the urban core of the country. And we are going to try to sort of uh, refit the Afghan military so that it's capable of operating without the United States. Some people have said you, you might have been able to do that by the end of 2021. I think that's probably a little bit optimistic. Some people have said what Biden should have done is said, we're, we're leaving for sure in, let's say, two years, which and that will become the, in, the interim period in which we can try to make sure that the Afghan military and the Afghan government can stand without our direct military support. 
those, I, I don't want to sound excessively confident about whether either of those would have worked. I think even proponents of those options admit that it still would have been a relatively tall order to overhaul an Afghan defense strategy and an Afghan military that had been built in a certain way in a year or in two years or, or whatever it was. I, I think it probably would have given the government a better chance of survival, although whether it would have passed that critical threshold, I, I can't confidently say. And another thing that surprised a lot of people was just how quickly the Taliban advanced on the major cities of the country, as well as Kabul. And in fact, you mentioned that they took Kabul before the U.S. evacuation was even done. In fact, thousands of civilians were still in the country. So how can we explain this? Was this a failure of intelligence, a failure of planning, both, or something else? Well, it, it's hard to say from the outside because we don't really know what sort of discussions were happening within the administration. My, my hunch is that it's a combination of a variety of things. I think there was probably some disconnect within the administration between uh, a defense department that uh, understandably moved to get U.S. personnel out of the country as quickly as possible once the decision to withdraw was made and a State Department that, that seemed to think there was uh, more time. I think uh, it's I think it's also relatively clear that once the Afghanistan withdrawal decision was made, the issue temporarily became less of a priority for top level decision makers who, again, understandably were focused on other things. I think there was also just some degree of a failure to understand how dramatically the U.S. withdrawal on such a rapid timeline was going to undermine the Afghan military. I'm not even sure that the Taliban understood how quickly things were, were going to go. And had you talked to um, people who spent a lot of time in the country, some of them, I think, would have predicted that the Afghan government was going to fall relatively quickly but I don't know that a lot of people would have predicted that it would happen uh, before the end of August. And so I think what, what happened was a basic failure to reckon with how dramatically the government would be undermined by the withdrawal. Uh, a little bit of bureaucratic disconnect within D.C. And then a process that literally just snowballed in Afghanistan, where once it became clear that certain units weren't going to fight against the Taliban and certain uh, provincial governments were not going to fight against the Taliban, then everybody who came after that recalculated their own odds and recalculated their own interests uh, accordingly. And so that was really what enabled this lightning spread of, of Taliban influence across the country in, in just a matter of weeks or even days uh, in the middle of the summer. And unfortunately, now Afghanistan is left largely controlled by the Taliban. So in your opinion, will they be able to keep control of the country? And how will the rise of new terrorist organizations such as ISIS-K affect this? Well, for now, the Taliban are clearly the preeminent force uh, in the country, and there doesn't appear to be a lot of armed resistance remaining. There were some, some forces... Uh, some associated, sort of the heirs to the old Northern Alliance, some of them associated with the Afghan government 
that temporarily escaped to the Panjshir Valley uh, and were trying to uh, generate a focal point of resistance to the Taliban. It appears that that, that movement has essentially been defeated by the Taliban uh, at that point, although I'm sure there is still low-level resistance occurring uh, in some places. And so the, the prospects for uh, a resistance that is in some way aligned with the United States or other democratic countries uh, or other friendly actors within Afghanistan appears pretty small right now. Now, it could it could pop up again. Uh, and in fact, if uh, you know history is any guide, the Taliban will probably have some trouble controlling all of the national territory, just as they did in the past. In the near term, though, uh, the more likely uh, scenario involves ISIS-K, as, as you mentioned, which is a particularly violent group that is an enemy of the, the Taliban. They've, in fact, engaged in some pretty violent con conflict with the Taliban in the past, as, as well as an enemy of the United States. It's been reported that ISIS-K, of course, was the group that carried out the uh, the attack on the Kabul airport that killed uh, 14 American uh, service members back, back in August. And so I, I think the Taliban will probably have some degree of difficulty dealing with ISIS-K. What they may try to do, however, is use that as a lever to win support from the United States and the international community by saying, look, we have this common enemy Basically, what will you give us in terms of diplomatic recognition, in terms of access to humanitarian aid and, and, and other ways, if we go deal with this problem for you, or if we help you deal with this problem? That's going to present some dilemmas for the United States, because if you ask, you know, what is the group that is most jazzed up about attacking American targets tomorrow that's based in Afghanistan, it may be ISIS-K. But if the result of going after ISIS-K is that we end up essentially abetting a Taliban regime that will surely do terrible things to the people of Afghanistan, and, and that remains closely tied to al-Qaeda, then it starts to look like less of a good bargain for us. Yes, this that, that question of whether or not to provide humanitarian aid and other type of aid to the Taliban... I, seems to me like it's going to be one that's going to be very interesting to see in the coming days because it seems that if we don't provide that aid, if our allies don't provide that aid, there are people that might be willing and able to step in and provide that aid. By people, I mean uh, China. So I want to explore now, like, what could China stand to gain from now the Taliban being in power? Could Does that present opportunities to the Chinese or will they have trouble getting to the Taliban as, as we might have the same trouble? I, I think the, Chi the Chinese probably see this as a bit of a mixed bag. And so on, on the one hand, uh, the Chinese have long argued that there are Uyghur separatists, Uyghur extremists who are holed up in Afghanistan. Uh, they are presumably a little bit worried about what the triumph of one Islamist movement in Afghanistan may mean for, let's say, Islamist forces that are attacking Chinese infrastructure projects in Pakistan or for unrest uh, among uh, Islamic populations within China. Uh, and there's been some indication that the Chinese are not entirely pleased with the way that the Taliban has gone about its business since it took power. On, on the other hand, uh, 
if you're China, it's never necessarily a bad thing to see the United States humiliated in such a fashion as happened in Afghanistan. Uh, the United States is no longer present in a country that we often forget does have a border uh, with China. The United States uh, no longer has air bases, for instance, in Afghanistan, which some people have, have argued, not entirely convincingly in my view, could be an American strategic asset in a competition or a conflict uh, with China. There have been some uh, rumors, mostly unsubstantiated so far, that uh, China is trying to get access to Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, uh, which would, if, if it happened, would become China, by far China's largest overseas military uh, installation or large foreign military installation under its control, uh, at least. And so there, there's a mix of kind of opportunity and danger here for Beijing. I'm Professor Brands to wrap up the podcast. How do you think this exit, this withdrawal, will affect U.S. prestige and perception in the long run? Well, the squirrely answer is that it's too soon to say, but I, I think that's actually the true answer as well. And so, I, I mean, I think there are kind of two or three points to keep in mind here. So one is that uh, the U.S. defeat in and withdrawal from Afghanistan is not going to necessarily invalidate or destroy the credibility of our defense commitments in the Western Pacific or in Europe. I mean, one thing we know is that countries are relatively, our allies are relatively sophisticated. They, they know the difference between the American presence in Afghanistan and American commitments elsewhere. And since we have said that we are getting out of Afghanistan to focus more on the China problem, it's not entirely clear that we would suffer devastating reputational consequences as a, as a result of withdrawal. That said, losing a war is never good for one's credibility and one's reputation. Losing a war to uh, basically a fifth-tier enemy like the Taliban is never particularly good for your reputation. Losing a war in such a humiliating fashion is never particularly good for one's reputation. And losing a war in a way that raises questions about uh, American diplomatic and military competence is never particularly reassuring for allies and, and partners. So, so those are two ways of thinking about it. But, but here's the third point, which I think is most important. It depends almost entirely on what happens now. And so if the United States is able to pivot from this defeat in Afghanistan and come up with a bunch of constructive strategic initiatives, whether it's a major uh, global COVID vaccination campaign, a bunch of moves in the competition with China, things to shore up the military balance in the Western Pacific, then I think the damage to America's position as a result of Afghanistan doesn't have to be severe. It could be something um, akin to Vietnam, where we, at the time, it seemed terrible, and then 15 years later, we looked back on it and we realized that it hadn't destroyed our strategic position uh, after all. That said, you know, it can go the other way as well. So if the United States suffers additional reverses after Afghanistan, uh, if there are other areas in which we are seen as being unable or unwilling to make good on commitments or to stand up to rivals and adversaries, if this uh, becomes a prelude to a period of deeper American retrenchment, then you could get compounding reputational effects that come out of this. And so I think a lot of this story remains to be written. Uh, and so it will be interesting to come back and ask the same question 
at the end of the Biden administration, a decade from now, 15 years from now, and see where we place Afghanistan within the larger sweep of U.S. foreign policy. Professor Brands, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.